If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. It is a privilege to be here with you. Uh, my heart is full. Uh, Second Presbyterian Church Memphis uh, in Jackson, we consider you a, a sister church to us. We have so many people in our congregation who have been fed and nurtured in the midst of your ministry. And uh, we have great links. We pray for you regularly. Uh, your pastor is a friend to us and a friend to me. And it's a great honor and privilege to be here. Uh, Ann and I have a number of friends in this congregation, David and Kathy Yawn and Jack and Nancy Bailey and so many others. And so I'm profoundly grateful for the opportunity to be here. Now, I really came because I wanted to hear David Wells and Ann and I wanted to uh, enjoy him as well. And that was a privilege too. I've listened to Dr. Wells on tape and I've read him and uh, it was such a privilege to hear him in person. And those of you who were at his lectures know why it was such a privilege. But this morning, my responsibility is to talk with you about the sovereignty of God in his mercy in salvation. Uh, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's choosing his own people as his own inheritance is a doctrine designed by God himself to promote his own glory and his people's comfort. But it is a doctrine which grates on some people. It's a doctrine which many people find very hard to swallow. And even many people who've sat in Presbyterian churches year after year after year, they uh, seem to think that it's unfair, uh, that it's unkind, uh, and that it's uh, discriminatory and therefore they have a hard time embracing it. And so my job is to address that very doctrine today. And let's go right to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight. We'll begin in verse 26 and read down to verse 34. This is God's word. And in the same way, the spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Thus ends this reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to it. Let us pray. Our Lord, we acknowledge that this is your word and we come faithfully to sit under it, to receive its teaching, to embrace its teaching. We ask the light, the illumination of your Holy Spirit upon his own word that we might embrace it and love it and obey it. For Christ's sake we ask it, amen. Now the idea of election is not difficult to prove from the scriptures. It is set out repeatedly and emphatically. Perhaps somebody has told you, oh, well, election is an Old Testament idea. Or perhaps they have said, oh, well, election is Paul's idea. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you will find the doctrine of, the, of election in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in some ways more emphatically in the New Testament. And you will find the doctrine of election from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And you will find it not only in Paul, but in Jesus, in Peter, in John, and in all the other New Testament authors. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is a doctrine which is comprehensive and it is crystal clear as it is set forth in the word. Let me just give you a few examples. If you were to turn with me to Psalm 33, verse 12, a, a passage we read yesterday morning, you would find God saying, blessed is the people whom the Lord has chosen for his inheritance. So there in the Psalm, the psalmist is acknowledging God's sovereignty in choosing a people for his own inheritance. And there's a mystery, isn't it? Him choosing us for his inheritance. I, I don't understand that. I never will. Why he wanted to choose us for his inheritance. And then we jump to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and we read, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's just there. It's, it's just right under our noses. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul will go on to say that God chose us from the beginning for salvation. You know, there are a lot of people that say, well, God chooses us, but not for salvation. Well, there it is. God chose us from the beginning for salvation. And then Peter gets in on the act in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says in echoing the words of Moses in the Old Testament, but now applying it to a Christian congregation, and of course to you and to me, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he's echoing all those glorious teachings of the book of Deuteronomy about how God had chosen Israel and he's applying it to the church. And then our Lord Jesus himself stressed to his disciples in John chapter 15 verse 16 that they did not choose him. He chose them. And why would that surprise us in light of what he had already taught them in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he said, no one can come to me unless my father draws him. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, praised God that he had hidden his salvation and judgment from some men while he revealed it to others. And then the Apostle Paul, back in Ephesians chapter 1 again, in verse 5, can say that God has predestined us 
to adoption as sons. And then again in verse 11 can say that God has predestined us according to his purpose. And in Romans 9, 18, he can uh, echo the words of the Old Testament that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You see, the doctrine of election is plain as the nose on your face. It's crystal clear. Well, that's great. We can fold our Bibles and go home now. I'm done. But you see, we resist this clear teaching of the word. Some of us are profoundly uncomfortable with it and we voice objections against it. We, things like, we say things like, that's not fair. But doesn't that make us robots? But isn't it unloving for God to do this, to choose one, to pass by another, to ordain one to life and one to perdition? It's unloving. And worse, it's discriminatory. And woe be it that God discriminate. I mean, that's the one sin left, isn't it? You can do anything in America, but you better not discriminate. It's unconstitutional. And here we find God in the heart of his word discriminating. And we say, this just can't be. I, I know it says it, but I just can't believe it. And we reject the teaching of the word. But my friends, behind that objection, behind that rejection of God's word about his own choosing, about his electing love, I believe are two things. The first thing is whenever we object to God's teaching in his scripture about his sovereign divine electing purposes, power, and love, we are placing ourselves in judgment of God. We are putting him in the dock and we are sitting ourselves on the bench and we are standing in judgment of God. And my friends, that is a dangerous place to sit. We are doing what Arius, the great early church heretic, did when he said, I just can't understand how God can be one eternal God and at the same time Jesus Christ can be equal with him, one with him, and fully divine. I don't understand how Jesus can be equal with God, distinct from God, and one with God, and therefore it can't be true. Arius had this postulate at the heart of his system, I will not believe what I cannot understand. And so he rejected the plain teaching of God's word. It is dangerous when we place ourselves on the bench of judgment over Almighty God. But my friends, connected to that and united with that particular thing, which is behind this rejection to God's election, is something that I think is deeper. And that is when we object to the God's teaching in his word about his divine election, somewhere in the recesses of our heart, we are suspecting that our hearts are larger with love and justice than God's heart is. And we think, oh, I would be much more loving were I God than this appears to be. Oh, God couldn't do that because that would be unloving and I'm such a loving person, I certainly know how to tell God what love is. And my friends, that kind of thinking can never be corrected until our hearts see the love of God in all its fullness. And we cease to think like this. We cease to say, my God is too loving to do something like that, something that I think is unfair. You see, when we say that, we're putting ourselves 
in judgment of God and we are suspecting that we are more loving than he is. My God is too loving to do something that I think is unfair. No, when we see the love of God in all its fullness, we will come to say, my God is so loving that whatever he says or does in the Bible, whether I understand it or not, whether I like it or not, I know that it is right and good and wise and kind and loving. And my friends, the only way I know to show you that this day is to point you to the love of God in all his sovereignty, in all his mercy and salvation. And I'd like you to look specifically at Romans 8.32. For here the Apostle Paul is expressing to a persecuted congregation something of the measure of God's love. And he says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is reminding us four things in that passage which will forever change the way we look at the love and the goodness of God. And the first thing that Paul is pointing us to is the involvement of God the Father in salvation. Notice what he says, he who did not spare his own son. Now, in what I'm about to say, I do not want in any way to minimize the involvement or the action of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, nor do I want to minimize the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. But I do want to draw your attention to the love and the involvement of God the Father in the cross of Calvary because that is what Paul is emphasizing here. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And this is so important because it is the Father's action which the Apostle has in mind, and it is so important because of misconceptions that we have about God the Father. Sometimes our picture of God the Father is all wrong, as if our salvation were wrested out of his hands grudgingly from a reluctant deity. And that's not the picture of the New Testament at all. It all began with the Father's love. The Father is the one who loved. The Father is the one who sent. He is the one who helped. He is the one who encouraged. And in the final analysis, he is the one who is acting on the cross. I am not saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is not acting on the cross. I'm simply saying that so often both the Old and the New Testament emphasize the action of the Father at the cross. Think of it in that great passage that we so often quote, John 3:16. What's the emphasis? For God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. The emphasis is on the giving of God the Father. And then we go to Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and what's the emphasis? That Jesus Christ was delivered up according to the predeterminate counsel and foreordination of God the Father. And we go back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, and what do we read? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And so, so often we think that what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's somehow trying to get God the Father involved in our salvation, trying to get God the Father to love us. And that picture is entirely wrong. Jesus is on the cross because of the Father's prior love. The cross is not the instrument to try and get God the Father to love us. It is his stratagem. 
in order to bring his love savingly to bear on every one of us. And my friends, we so often overlook the emotional content of the love of the Father on Calvary. You know, when we look at Genesis 22 and we see Abraham with weary heart, with broken heart, making his way up the steps of Moriah to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, whom we love, we know Abraham's heart is breaking. We don't need Moses to tell us that. And we look at Calvary and somehow we think that God the Father is unmoved. And we read in the book of Samuel about David's grief over that son that he indulged and never disciplined. And one day that son rose up in rebellion against him and tried to cast him out of his own kingdom and kill him. And even when Joab, his general, comes in to announce with joy that Absalom has been slain, we have killed your enemy. We know what David is going through when he tears his clothes and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would that it were I that had died instead of you. And somehow we look at the cross and we don't think that the father's heart is breaking when he sees his son on the tree. And not only sees his son on the tree, but realizing that it's the father who is bruising his son. If we take these things into consideration, there's no way that God the father is unmoved by the spectacle of Calvary and what he is causing to happen upon Calvary. And then comes that moment when the son utters that quotation from Psalm 22, why? And the father longs to answer that question, why? And I do not see why I should not say that corresponding to the pain of the son's abandonment, that there is a corresponding pain to God the father. And how that moment relates to the eternalness of God, I do not know. But I know this, that the whole glorious principle of the divine compassion is a reflection not only of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of the fact that God the Father has been down in the dereliction too. He has borne the pain of the loss of his own son. And so when he deals with us in his pity and compassion, he remembers that we are but dust and he is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And when he hears us pray, Abba, Father, or our Father who is in heaven, he has the voice of his son ringing in his ears. And he will not deny us because he cannot deny himself. And you see, the Apostle Paul wants you to pause and he wants you to reflect for one moment about the sovereignty of the Father's mercy and love in the cross of Calvary. But that's not all. Paul goes on to point you to the unique preciousness and glory of the divine son. Look at his next words. He who did not spare his own son. He wants you to think for a moment about just how glorious the son was to the father. He wants you to think about the uniqueness of the father and the son's mutual love. You see, this son, Jesus Christ, was loved as no human son was ever loved. And he was loving as no human son ever loved. And you know, when we see God giving that divine directive to Abraham in Genesis 22, we know that every word and every syllable of that command was burned in the heart of Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and sacrifice him. And yet the son of God was even more precious to him than Isaac to Abraham. In fact, Abraham's love was just a paint, a pale reflection of the love of God for his son. And you have all those descriptions in the New Testament of the uniqueness 
of God the Father and God the Son's relationship. You think of John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was towards God. And then you have that indescribable word in Colossians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of his love. And Prudentius tries to capture that in his hymn of the Father's love begotten. And I don't see far into those words. But I know this, that there is this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 says, Father, grant them to have the same kind of relationship with us as I have with you. And I don't know any more glorious prayer than's ever been prayed. But on the cross, all his sonship and all his uniqueness and all his glory is obscured. If you and I had been standing there that day, we would have seen the form of a man, a slave, a condemned criminal, but not the father. That's not what he saw when he looked down at the cross. He saw the last person in the universe that he wanted to be there. He saw the last person in the universe that he wanted to forsake, the last person in the universe that he wanted to bruise. And it's even more poignant because at the cross, his son is excelling himself in his love. He was exceedingly precious to the father at that moment. In the glory of his obedience, he was surpassing himself in all that he had ever done. Greater love had never been seen, John said. He had always been a glorious son and the father had always manifested pleasure in him. You remember at the baptism, the father could not resist crying out, this is my son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration, when Peter was running his mouth, I've always thought he was American, the father says, be silent, this is my son, hear him. And in those poignant days before the crucifixion itself, when the Lord Jesus lifts up a prayer in John that God would glorify himself in the hour of his trial, the Father says from heaven, I have heard you and I will bring glory out of this. And here at the cross, his son is going beyond anything that he has ever done before in obedience. He has always been obedient to the suffering. He was born in this churl, into this world, not as a king on a throne, but he was born as a pauper in a trough which animals eat out of. There's nothing sentimental whatsoever about his birth in the manger. He began to, bore our, to bear our sins from the very beginning of his experience. But here at the cross, he's exceeding himself. He's surpassing himself in glory, and yet there's no word of help. When Abraham gets to the peak of Moriah, there's the word of the angel which says, touch not the lad. When David had sinned and destruction was being wrought upon Israel and the death angel approached the blessed city of Jerusalem, God cried out from heaven and he said, stop. But here on Calvary, there's no day's man for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our catechism puts it this way. He felt and he bore the weight of the wrath of God. And you can't take that in. But the father could not spare him because he was bearing sin. He was sin. He was a curse. And you'll never understand the cross 
until you understand how intense the love of God is for the Son on the cross and how glorious and how precious the Son is to the Father precisely at the moment when he's bearing our sin. But Paul's not done with you yet. He not only wants you to see the involvement of the Father, he not only wants you to see the preciousness of the Son, he wants you to see the totality of the Son's sacrifice. Notice his words, he did not spare, but he delivered him up. The sacrifice of the Son is utterly unreserved. He is delivered limitlessly. He is pushed to the outer limits of the cosmos and he is left alone. And I want to say it, and I want to say it reverently, but no being was ever less prepared to be forsaken by God. You know, you and I, one of the sad things about our Christian experience is there are months and there are years even when we walk in estrangement from God, and oftentimes we go for a long while without ever realizing it. God in his grace wakes us up and suddenly we realize we've been without him and he draws us in his love back to himself. The son had never been apart from the experience of the father's love. They had always been going out and coming in from eternity. And then there's this moment when the face of the father is not there. No man was ever less prepared for that than the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friends, it's not just the negative action, it's not just the abandonment, it's the cost positive action of the Father on the tree which points to the totality of his sacrifice. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. It's not simply that the Father is abandoning, it's the Father is bruising him and the Father is pouring out his wrath on him, and there is no day's man for him. My friends, we must never forget, we must never forget that we cannot go where he went. You know, that's why it's so poignant when the disciples say, grant that I may be enthroned with you at your right and your left hand, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. We can never go where he went we can never stand where he stood because he did not stand in the dereliction with us. He stood there for us in our place. And my friends, in your darkest hours, in your bleakest nights, in those times when sorrow and tribulation overwhelm your souls and you feel as if the Lord cannot hear your cries, you are never standing where Jesus stood because he stood there for you. And we can never say in this life that we have been utterly forsaken and we can never say that we have gotten what we deserved because he always stands in between. We cannot stand where he stood. We are never where he was, never, 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 because he stood there for us. And it is one of the great mysteries of life that one day when you are in glory by God's grace, you may walk from one end of eternity to another and interview every being in heaven and you will not find one who knows what it is to be forsaken by God except your Lord. We can never stand where he stood. He once told his disciples that at the last day there would be people who would cry, Lord, Lord. And God would say, I never knew you. Jesus cried, Lord, Lord. 
so that you would never hear the words, I never knew you. He bore it for you. You see the glory of the Son in the totality of his sacrifice, but Paul's not finished yet. For Paul not only stresses the involvement of the Father and the preciousness of the Son in the totality of the sacrifice, he stresses that this was a divine substitution. It was for us. Look at the words. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He delivered him us over for us all. It's one of the great misfortunes of our lives that we have never stood before the angriness and the incomprehensibility of the cross. We have already, we have always had this cross under control. We have always had our own inherited philosophical presuppositions in order to domesticate this cross and to make it beautiful. But the cross is monstrous and the cross is brutal and the cross is unjust. Now, why do I say that? I say that because on the cross, the wrath of God is striking out at the one place in the universe where it has no right to strike. If it had been you and me, it would have made sense. If it had been the whole human race, it would have made sense. But the Son of God and cross makes no sense. The wrath of God is being poured out on the one place in the universe where there is only perfection and righteousness. And my friends, the horror of the cross is that Christ himself becomes the accursed of his father. The tree itself is but the human instrument of his pain. The great pain that he bears is the pain of the curse and the abandonment and the penal sanction of his own father. The Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Prince of peace bears the covenantal anathema of the Father. The wrath of God strikes out at his beloved Son and he's cast out, he's banished, he's cut off, he's off limits, he's outside, he's in that place where there's no light and no love and no hope and no joy and no comfort and no assurance of ultimate victory. He is in the outer darkness. And it's the most unjust thing that ever happened. It's more unjust than all the injustices that rack the consciences of 20th century men, more unjust by far. And so you have to stand before that cross and you have to ask, why is God bruising his own son? And that's why we need, that's why we need that great phrase, that tiny little phrase for us. Because those two little words link the Lord Jesus Christ to what we deserve and render him vulnerable to our punishment. And so Paul says he became a curse for us. The delivering up of Christ for us is a reminder of the sheer extravagance of God's love. You know, if you and I had been in the garden after the sin of Adam, who of us would have had the audacity to say, well, look, God, Adam sinned. Why don't you give your own son? Why don't you just give your own son in his place? That's ridiculous. And that's exactly what God did. You see, that's God's love. It's going too far. It's prodigal, it's prodigal, it's wasteful, it's extravagant. You can pile up all, all the, the words you want. It's God's love. It's going too far. And Paul is saying, 
Look, he's given the greater. He's given the greatest. He's given his son. And all things can't add up to what he's already given. And you wonder what enabled men like Job to bow down before the ferocious providence of God and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord and fall down and worship him. It's because they knew the love of God. What made men like Paul Gerhardt, that great German pastor, and Samuel Radegast be able to write hymns like, Whate'er my God ordains is right. They hadn't figured it all out. They'd experienced the love of God. And in the face of the most unbelievable and intensive experience of injustice in this world, they knew that God still reigned in his justice. Right as I came to the seminary, we had a missions professor join our faculty. And uh, he preached his first sermon, and it was on election and how election is the great impetus in missions. And don't you think that didn't warm this systematic theologian's heart? And at the end of that sermon, he shared with us a poignant story. His father had never been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Sam had spent all his adult Christian years witnessing to the love and to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his last days, his father had begun to show some spiritual interests, whereas before he had always brushed Sam aside and pushed aside what he said. And then tragedy struck. His father was diagnosed with a very virulent disease which took his life in a short period of time. And Sam's father died without Sam ever knowing where he stood with God. And Sam said to us this day, when he preached before us, he said, my friends, I don't know where my father is. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. But I know this, wherever he is, my God did what was right. And I trust him. Oh, my friends. You'll never be able to bow before the sovereignty of God until you have been awash in his love. And once you've experienced that love, you'll never be able to mistrust him in the greatness of his sovereignty. Let us pray. Our Lord, we cannot do justice to your word. We are paupers in our understanding of it. But you have made us rich in Christ and showered an undeserved and incomprehensible love upon us in him from which we can never be separated. What can we say? But, oh God, be God. Be yourself and reveal yourself to us as you are. To the praise of your glorious grace, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.